Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Iris Pod. I'm delighted to be joined today by Cherie Atchison, who is a multi-award winning diversity and inclusivity executive, has spoken about the subject on a number of occasions, um, and a keynote speaker, also contributor to Forbes. Cherie, welcome to the Iris Pod. <laughs> Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you for having me. Was that a good was that a good enough introduction for you there? Maybe you can tell us in your own words what your world is and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm Cherie and I'm listed as one of the UK's most influential women in technology. And I've, like you've said, won lots of awards for my work across the world. Um, I'm also a published author of the book Demanding More, Why Diversity and Inclusion Don't Happen and actually what you can do about it. And my work is really, really focused in on unearthing privilege through data points, understanding people analytics in a much more nuanced way and making sure that we set very, very clear goals on how we do things. Um, my background, I used to be a software engineer, so I take a very technical view to the creations of my strategies. And I like to think that's why I've been so successful at it so far. Well, let's start there, because that's actually a really interesting um, kind of start point for us. And that's software engineering, both in terms of um, women uh, and in terms of people of color and other um, uh, ethnic minorities. Why in particular is this something where it's mainly male dominated? Because you're breaking the mold with that. Are you seeing a trend and a shift towards more uh, women being, being involved in that sort of um, role profile? I think when we look at the shift, yes, there is certainly a change um, and a positive change when we start to see the attraction of more women into technology. One of the organizations I sit on the board of is Women Who Code, which is the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in tech. When we have, I think, over 300,000 members and, and a presence in almost every city. And when I started with that organization seven, eight years ago now, we had 3,000 global members and we're now 300,000. So there's a clear wow. attraction of women to the industry, but less less focusing on the attraction, actually the retention of that group through organizations changing how they hire, how they promote, what they deem as successful and not, and actually flexibility to make sure those things work. There is still quite a long way to go because we see at the lower, more middle, middle grades, we have higher representation increasing, but actually at the most senior levels, there's not a lot changing and certainly not enough changing. And that's where we know when we think of senior leadership, that it's really important that we target in how we attract people into those roles, how we support people up into those and why at the same time. Do you think the, I would dig a bit more into the, um, the kind of leveling of the playing field that potentially hybrid working, virtual working can set, but do you think that that just for this particular point around software engineering, do you think it opens up a, a, a new career opportunity for a group of people that maybe previously wouldn't have been able to, to do that? Um, I'm thinking, you know, uh, working mums and that kind of demographic. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when, when flexible working is done with nuance, it works better than anything that's static because people as a whole are not static. What people's needs are, are not monolithic. And previously and very, very often, we have workplaces that treat people in that way, that are very monolithic. You come in, these are your core hours, this is how it works, this is when you can leave, this is when you can't leave, and so on and so forth. And actually, that doesn't work for people with different requirements, 
different caring responsibilities and whatever it might be. The, the useful thing with flexible working is that it allows people to fit work around life as opposed to life around work. And that's what ultimately our goal should be. We shouldn't be here to try and impose things onto people's lives, but rather recognizing that when they have flexibility, when they can prioritize their time in a better way, they work better, they collaborate better because they're happier, they're more content. And it's very, very clear that flexible working is doing that. But what's really important about flexible working is that it itself is flexible, that we're not going you know, completely remote, completely in office, but allowing people to choose what works for them because some people will prefer to be in office, some will not. But again, the choice should be for the, with the person within reason. What are the barriers to, uh, to inclusivity and some of these challenges that we're working so hard to, to address um, potentially with hybrid and, and virtual working? I can certainly see in a world where we're more tuned into our mental well-being and um, connectivity to others that whilst this presents incredible opportunities for people to work in a different pattern that suits their home lives, um, their family, certainly this could be a ticking time bomb on some of these issues that are connected to mental health, mental well-being. Um, I think it's a balance here because actually I, I have the view that certainly a better flexible working is better for mental health and better for well-being because of the ability to shift priorities in a way that works for you. I also think it's really, really important to recognise that disabled people, for example, have been asking for years to have flexibility with working and businesses have said, we can't do that. And then all of a sudden we have a global pandemic and suddenly, yes, we are able to do that. We are able to have conferences remotely and so on that are more inclusive from an accessibility perspective as well. What I think is important here is that we recognise that there is merit to being flexible and being remote and there is merit to coming together when it makes sense. The key point there is that does it make sense for me, for example, as a senior leader in my organisation to come and sit in an office between nine to five with my headphones in having calls around the world, which would mean I would sit on a yeah. train for 30 <laughs> minutes in the sweltering heat, for example, that would make no sense. But actually, once a month, does it make sense to me to travel somewhere, for example, in EMEA or in the States to collaborate with the other leadership teams? Yes, that would make sense. And it's about really maximizing the outputs that people get when they come together, as opposed to just well, I want you to come in and I want you to sit at this desk because we paid for this office space and I want to be able to see that you're working as opposed to <laughs> recognizing that we should trust the people we hire. And if we don't trust them, then we have probably made a mistake or we're not equipped to be managers. And that's a very different conversation. Is this, I certainly think that the, um, the kind of archaic thought process of being able to see your team um, was forced upon leadership. How much of this is a is a leadership issue, in terms of that trust in employees, um, and and kind of a second part to that? How do employees that want that trust kind of show it and have that empathy back up towards their management? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've already kind of summed it up by saying empathy. Um, whenever I work a lot with other leaders. The main thing I ask people to have is empathy and people always say, oh, yeah, I'm really empathetic. But actually, most of the time they're not <laughs> because they're only <laughs> empathetic to people they identify with, not the other people that maybe have very different needs, very different lifestyles, whatever it might be. And that's where we get this disconnect. Do I think that the problem with 
with around trusting employees to not need to be bums in seats is with leadership. Yes, I do. Because if you if you operate in that kind of archaic, almost legacy way, then middle managers will do the same thing. And then we just conti- continue this time bomb or this circle effect that never changes. Now, what I would love people to do when it comes to trusting people is one, if you hire someone who's got the skills that you need for the job and so on, what's really important here is expectations are set. And expectations must be clear because otherwise, if I, as a senior leader, expect something, but I don't tell you as the person who's operationalizing that, then how can I, how can you ever meet my expectations? And then I won't trust you because actually you haven't done what I thought. But the problem here is me because I didn't take what was in my head and put it out through my mouth. So what I ask people to do is be very, very clear on deliverables and also be very, very clear on actually the timeframes that we're working to. You know, do we need this done within the quarter? Is it within a month? Is it a very, very quick turnaround? So everybody can work to the same guidelines. And that's where I think trust really happens. Trust isn't broken until something doesn't happen unless someone has a very fair reason for it. But ultimately, what I'm saying to people is treat people like adults. You know, treat everybody like an adult. We're not children here in the workplace. So I don't need someone and you don't need me breathing down your neck because actually that will demoralize you. That will stop collaboration because you won't trust me to come with any problems as your leader. And then we're just in a vicious cycle. I completely agree. And I think, you know, it was a big learning curve, but more than anything, it proved that really we are uh, capable of working in in this way. Um, Because you're someone in software and technology close to your heart, do you think that the technology is, is fully there yet to really cater to this hybrid and virtual working pattern, because I think software and the platforms that we use are are also a key factor in uh, being inclusive and making sure that systems, infrastructure, and tools that we need are available to all. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's two sides to that because I think technology has allowed us to pivot almost overnight in the way we did when when was it like March 2021 when everything kind of just blew up. And everything yeah. kind of changed. And because of those technology that we had, whether it's video conferencing, whether it's streaming services and so on, we were able to pivot quite quickly. But the key thing about it now is that how do we ensure that those technologies are accessible for people with different needs? Also, how are we making sure as team collaborators, as managers and so on, that we're using those tools to the best of their ability? Very often, you know, we, we click a button, we put our video on, we start to speak we maybe don't think, actually, should I put transcriptions on? Should I be recording this? Should I be using the different closed captions that are available? And that's why I think when we when we use technology to pivot and to, I wouldn't say replicate, but mimic some of the in-person experience that we have, we really need to know the platforms well. Do I think those platforms can get better? Of course I do. I also think when you think of barrier to entry, you know, to do video calls, you have to have good Wi-Fi, you have to have a safe, quiet space to do that and so on. But that's where that hybrid piece comes in around being able to go into the office, organisations supporting staff that maybe can't afford those things with stipends so they can't afford those things, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all about that flex, but also recognising that as a business, if we want people to be at home, we also have to be able to facilitate what that means. And that means all of the boring stuff like setting up admin and setting up, you know, an office space and all that too. I think um, it's something we've talked about on this podcast a number of times. The, uh, again, 
there was this kind of funny trend when the lockdown first happened. It's like, show your office and, you know, show your background. And actually, I felt like a lot of people would be incredibly uncomfortable sharing that because, um, you know, we do a lot of work in in the contact center space, for instance, which is a, a job type that um, lends itself to, you know, maybe a younger demographic, multi-generational households. Um, and, you know, you don't have a dedicated office. It's the end of your bed. <laughs> uh, or it's like the kitchen worktop at best. Um, how how much do you think companies as they, you know, if you think about how much it costs them to put a desk in, a, in an office building, should they be investing more in the actual, not just the tech and the, and the um, the platforms they use, but actually the surroundings, the actual place that they sit and maybe work eight or more hours a day. Well, yes, I, and I, I don't think I'm aware of companies, if there are, they would need to change that. But certainly I know in all of the companies I've worked with um, since all of, all of this happened and even before that, if you're setting up a home office, there should be a stipend to do so, <clears throat> excuse me, to make sure that people are working safely, firstly, because you have to have safety involved in all of this. Um, and in a way that works for them. And I think when, when you talk about, you know, turning on your background, it's one of the things I, I talk about quite a lot because of the the privilege that there is to be comfortable in doing that. Um, studies have shown, which I think are really interesting, that um, in a study of over, I think it was 71,000 students across the UK, um, every single stage of the, at, at every single stage of the recruitment process, those from higher socioeconomic backgrounds are more comfortable in every stage of the process. And actually those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds were dropping out statistically higher at live video stage than anybody else. And that was ultimately because if you think about it, you know, firstly, to do a video interview, maybe you have a laptop or, you know, a phone or something that has a phone in it or a, a camera in it. You have Wi-Fi or you have 4G that you can connect to. You have a safe, quiet space, but also you have time. And I want us to think about the impact of time here. You know, can I take a, a video interview if I want to at any time? Yes, I'm a senior leader. My calendar is my own. If I was in shift work, I can't do that. Let's say I work in Tesco between my shift of eight to eight and I have to be there. You have to clock in and out of your time. It's very, very specific. And then if we think of the overlap here for people from poorer backgrounds, typically are more regularly in shift work, et cetera, and also in industrial work. So that's when we think about here, the impact of, let's say when you're at home and we join a meeting together, Tom, and you're like, oh, we'll turn on video today. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But somebody else doesn't. And one of my biggest pet peeves is if someone joins a call and they don't have the video on and I don't care about that, but someone else is like, oh, Sheree, I can't see you. Turn on your video. I'm like, no, <laughs> if I have it off for a reason, we should respect that. Now, and that's where I think, um, I guess, like ways of working and how we work together is really important. Everything I do is about providing clarity so everybody is on the same page. And if we don't do that, then we again, these mismatched expectations. I have my video on all of the time because I'm entirely comfortable with that. Other people are not comfortable with that and that's entirely fine too. But the key part here is the empathy and the understanding that actually not everybody has this lovely office that I have that's nice and quiet until hopefully my two dogs do not start to bark. But bar that, it's just- We can't hear them. We can't hear him. That's why we built this piece Perfect. of technology. <laughs> Perfect. That's because my husband is also like keeping them in another room far, far away from me, just in case. That's <laughs> funny. Actually, it reminded me of that story, which was pretty sad, really, um, which was a, a director, I think, of a, of a film or or a theater show. And he was 
doing auditions and, and an actor appeared on the oh, Zoom call this. and he yeah, and he he was like, he said, oh, what a yeah. sad little apartment. Look at it with a TV on the wall. It's so tragic. And the actor said, I, I, yeah. I can hear you. You're not actually on mute. And, you know, it was quite, um, that was actually a key moment, I thought, where it was like, how how patronizing. And, and you know, that is a different kind of inclusivity. Um, you know, my my home, What what can, where can I afford to live? I, I want this job so I can afford maybe to buy somewhere better um, or rent somewhere better. Um, so it's all very interesting. You, you touched on a point and I just wanted to to ask you about your um, your article, I think, in Forbes, which was about uh, good intentions are not enough to create inclusive or safe tech. I, I found it quite a fascinating read. T- talk, talk to us a little bit about what that, what that actually um, means. I, I think for me, um... Very often we have people spinning up new technologies. We have, I think, a generation, my generation included, that are very entrepreneurial. And that means that we have new ideas bouncing off the walls and so on. And then we think, let's make it. Let's just make it. Let's just get it out there. Let's see what happens. Without the recognition that, one, we really have to consider different perspectives and the needs of others when we do that. And, two, that safe technology is key. Now, where that that article came from was when the war and the invasion started from Russia into Ukraine, we saw um, uh, a few um, MIT Stanford students in the US spin up like uh, a platform where you could where Ukrainian folks could be paired with people in other countries like the UK, like the States and so on. But there was no checks involved. So it was like, oh, I want to do something to help. I want to pair people. But one, it's more than likely that women and children are going to be leaving. And those are the most vulnerable groups, especially right now. And two, that not everybody on that site is there with the right intentions. But there was no checks. There was no passport checks, no nothing. So literally, I could sign up and I could say that I'm actually Tom. And I'm doing this, that, and I have this house and I have everything else. And actually, maybe I'm not Tom whatsoever. I'm Cherie. And it's very different. And we see that quite a lot when we have new technology. One of the biggest problems I have with the tech industry is the overwhelming ego that exists when it comes, especially from founders, <laughs> because what that tends to do, as you will, everybody will know, ego blindsides you. It stops you seeing actually what's outside of your own four walls in your head because you assume what you are doing is the best thing because I came up with it and I am very, very intelligent. <laughs> Therefore, it must be right. And what I would really love founders to do intelligent founders let's say to take a moment take a step back and think one do i need to do this are there organizations maybe that just need funding that already exist that have the movements there and this was an example where they did or two do i need to spend longer than just rushing something that, that could directly really really harm people we see this a lot when it comes to new ais and bias and data sets and so on and that's where this slowing down is really important when people ask me what my job is I always say it's to put friction into decision making at its most basic level. It's to stop people making decisions like that to get you to take a second. But in technology, it's a fast moving industry. It's very agile. People are rolling out things all of the time without the real implications of safety, of security, of accessibility, for example. And to be very honest, thinking about it after after you've had backlash just isn't good enough. It's not good enough. And yet we so regularly accept it. Yeah, it's, I guess, the mentality of making a quick buck, um, exploiting a situation for financial gain in, in many ways. 
Um, but we have to be better. We have to. We had a, a team day last week um, where we got everybody to talk about their their personal values and how they aggregate up to our company values. You'll be you'll be glad to hear that empathy was was up there as one of the top um, top uh, points. But actually, there was a good conversation around accessibility of our website, of our technology, tool tips. Do we make this something that's you know, um, incredibly easy to use as a platform, irrespective of whatever kind of visual or um, other kind of impairments that you might have. Um, so it's vitally important. Um, to, to just flip to, to the messaging, you also wrote in Forbes about inclusive uh, marketing. And I wanted to just uh, dig into that one as a kind of marketer at heart. What, what, um, tell us a little bit more about that and what that means, because I think sometimes you know, inclusive marketing is, uh, right, have we got a, a kind of quorum of um, black people, brown people, um, you know, et cetera, yeah. yet tick, done. Uh, tell us your thoughts um, about this. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, when we talk, before we even talk about inclusive marketing, when I talk about my diversity and inclusion work, it's not just the stuff that we do within, let's say, HR, people and culture and so on. It's how we create technologies. It's how we create our marketing. And one of the biggest pitfalls in the industry is that it's not tackled in that way. And so that's why I wrote that blog. And I, I did a, a keynote on it in, in Sweden as well. Um, what I think is really important about inclusive marketing is really, really recognizing who your audience is, not just making an assumption that it will fit the masses because we say so. But actually, what I think is really important here is the user testing that goes on before, beforehand, the user research, but also really understanding the niche that our products may have in a way to people that we just maybe have not considered. I know a great example is whenever Gillette did a campaign for trans men um, when they started to use razors because it wasn't something that they ever had to do before. And then there was a lovely ad where a dad was teaching his son who had just transitioned to how to shave for the first time and he's in his late 20s clearly um so it's thinking actually other people are using this product are we marketing to them with our standard adverts or actually do we need to do more i think the other key thing here is seeking those perspectives before we make decisions um i think in any in any leadership remit and i sit in leadership myself um it's very easy for us to assume what we do as a collective is the right thing most of the time that may be the case, of course, because you have the experience, the expertise, and you would assume that that would lend yourself to thinking in the in the way that makes the most sense. But that doesn't mean we can't be wrong. And that's why I really ask people to seek those different perspectives before you make decisions. One, because it means you create a better solution. But two, when you seek them after, it costs you much more money to change something. And especially yeah. in marketing, let's say you push out a big campaign and it just falls flat. Um, I, I, one of the examples I always think of was that that Albert, I think it was for Pepsi with um, one of the Kardashians or the Jenners or something, and she's giving a Pepsi to stop the the the, the riots that are happening on the on the roads, and it just get raked because it was like, yeah. who did you ask who said that that was a good idea? And you've also completely undermined the huge issue with police violence, for example, in America that's happening by saying that a Kardashian could stop with a Coke can or a Pepsi can. Um, because nobody thought, actually, think for two seconds that maybe we should do something different. So again, it's about friction before decision-making, seeking different perspectives, and recognizing that our tools, our solutions, our products, maybe have users that we've never thought about, and we won't think of them 
until we really delve down into what customers want. Yeah, I, I, oh, I remember that. Um, it was <laughs> I can't remember if it was Pepsi or Coke. <laughs> I just did a, I did a shudder. Um, it's, it's like you don't always have to insert your brand into every piece of, um, you know, kind of social shift for virtue no, signaling that's exactly purposes. It. It's, it's, it's virtue quite signaling obnoxious. in that case, and it fell very, very, very flat. <laughs> yeah um yeah awful um quick let's move on because i'm feeling quite <laughs> icky about that one um let's um let's go back to the beginning um and actually you know another one of your uh, contributions i think with with deloitte in the uk uh was about should we be teaching children to code um and that kind of you know if you think about how we get um more women in tech and diversity in tech is that where it starts but is it also treading a fine line with children that are incredibly, um, uh, they're like sponges at that age, so they can get incredible benefit. But also there's a nature where kids lock themselves away and just spend hours on their computers anyway. So what's the right yeah, way to I, tread I mean, this path? What I think is important, so I think there's two, there's two points to that. Um, the first one is, do I think working with school children, school girls, for example, is one of the avenues to get more women in technology? Yes. But also we have to do the pieces where we really support women when they come into the industry, where we challenge the bias, we remove discriminatory measures that do exist and so on. But if we focus in on the, the younger children and the young girls, what I really want people to have and young girls to have is at least have exposure to some of these things we're talking about, like coding and so on, so they can at least decide if they don't like it themselves. What I don't want is for people to make the assumption that people won't like something based on their gender identity. Because that's obviously very, very stupid when you say something like that. You cannot make assumptions and stereotypes in that way. And for me, what I, what I think makes sense is that when we think of coding, we think of this as a skill set. We think of this as an opener to different careers, to problem solving, to analytical thinking and so on. That is very, very useful for many careers because of the type of way it makes you think and of the type of mindset that you get into when you work in that kind of field. Now, I think when we give young girls the opportunity, whether it's through like Scratch or MIT App Invent or even Minecraft, um, I think what's really, really powerful with that is that they see technology in a way that's different to what is just being lambasted at them all of the time, that it's very boyish, for example, it's very masculine and so on. And um, for me personally, one of the reasons I became a software engineer and I grew up in the 90s, so I'm 31 now, um, was that I randomly had a cousin who was also a software engineer who then whenever we would go to his house and he was maybe 10 years older than me, maybe 11 years older than me, he was coding. And then when he had a job and I was starting to do my GCSEs and my A-levels, I had exposure to the work he was doing and so on. Now, if I hadn't have had that, would I maybe have chose computing for A-level, computer science, university, and so on? I don't think I would have, because actually I wouldn't have ever really considered it. So I was very, very lucky. I had that direct exposure to decide whether I liked it or not. What, we're what I think is really important is that other young girls, people that aren't represented in the industry, people from poorer backgrounds and so on, have that exposure so they have the same access to opportunities that some other people have and some people don't. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, I would just think about some of the roles that we've been hiring into over the last uh, year or so. And obviously, you know, we're a software company. 
So we have a lot of those roles. Um, yeah. It's, it's quite challenging also as a recruiter to see the profiles and just think, wow, I'm trying to put my best foot forward here and, and consider um, diversity. But, you know, this is the selection of applicants that I have for this role. And, and you know, they're all incredibly talented, but they're all white men <laughs> that's that, that's it, it's a challenge the other way how, how do you how do you manage that as a as a company recruiting when when that's the people that are applying it's it's kind of how, how do you make sure you're 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 thinking about it but also you know not hiring just to yeah of course inject yeah. diversity I mean, we do that. Um, so i think there's, th there's three things that i want people to do in that scenario the first thing is i really want you to understand and delve into where your job applications are getting to what kind of pools are they getting to are they actually getting to these different for example women in technology or is it just we bought it on the website we put it on linkedin for example and those who follow us will click through who are the majority of people that follow us and then we tend to get an answer what i think is really important for that point is thinking about the different communities you can help use to get exposure to your jobs organizations like women who code for example, that have job boards, that have exposure and members all over the world that will able, be much more likely to click through a job if it's, I guess, almost associated with an organization that shows you're supporting women in tech. The second thing that's really important is before you even do that is reviewing that job in the first place. Um, so many times I get people coming to me saying, we're not getting anyone applying for this senior developer job. I don't understand why. We put it on this job board and so on and so forth. But actually, the job description is riddled with like masculine language, very almost aggressive language, things that don't resonate with a lot of people, many men included as well. And actually, what we want to do is be very neutral. We can very much say that we have a fast paced environment without saying that you have to be a rock star to be in it. You know, I'm very, very good at my job. Would I describe myself as a rock star? Probably not, because that sounds like the most cringe thing I think I could say. Um, <laughs> and then the third thing I, I want people to do is to really work on how you train interviewers. Very often, when you get to a certain level, we assume that, okay, you're at a senior level, so you should be fine to interview people. But actually, have we trained those people on interviewing or are we making an assumption and assumptions are riddled with bias. So what I tell people to do is I mandate interviewer training for those groups of people. Anyone that's involved in hiring or interviewing, they must be acutely aware of good interviewing practices, how to listen properly, how to ask the right questions, how to challenge the top six biases that exist in hiring and so on. And I think what's important about that is we then can have a, a consistent understanding of what good interviewing means for company X. Without that, it's very unlikely that you'll get people in. And I guess the last piece very quickly is practicing the principle of patience. It's very easy for us to hire very quickly, especially in tech with um, homogeneous groups, of course. Where we can, I ask people to just give that bit more time when you do these other things. It won't happen overnight. It's going to take time, especially with senior leadership. You know, do I want you to hire the best person for the job? Yes. Do I want you to make sure that you've widened the talent pool enough so we can be confident we've got the best person for the job, not just the best person that's in our immediate network?
And by doing that, what I tend to ask organizations to do is that for, for senior leadership, where you, you have sort of it's less, less numbers, for example, is that before you hire any other senior leader, you commit to interviewing at a second stage. So past, you know, the first sort of, um, I guess, hiring manager interview, that before you make a decision that you have at least a certain number of people from underrepresented backgrounds at that stage, because that forces you to at least widen the pool enough to decide, have we went through enough different candidates to see, is this the best person? Sometimes the best person will be that person in your network. Okay, but I want us to be very, very confident that that's the case before we make a decision. Because then when we talk about changing our diversity demographics, what we're really talking about then is succession planning and not hiring. And that's a whole other conversation. That's really sound advice. Thank you for us here and, and for anyone who who uh, tunes into the podcast. Um, Cherie, we're, we're pretty much out of time here. I wanted to ask you, um, uh, what's your favorite bit of tech at the minute? What's your favorite piece of software? Well, that's, a, that's a good question. What's um, changing think, your life right now? What's changing <laughs> my life right now? <laughs> um, I, don't, I, don't, I guess it's probably quite boring, um, but one of the things that I, I, I really have always like, because I've always been very interested in music, and I w- I've always, like, from a very young age, because my dad was always very interested in music, and I, I grew up in the 90s when, you know, you used to have, you know, the videos that you had to put the, the pencil in to rewind and stuff like that, and then we got CDs, and then we got things I like remember. Spotify and, yeah. and stuff like that, and for me, even still, things like Spotify really change how I work, because it really, really allows me to hone in on certain moods that I have and so on. But actually, one of the favorite things that I have on Spotify right now is their blend function, which allows me. So my partner also has Spotify and it brings together the music we both like. And I find it one of those things that, um, I don't know, I just think it's a very, very nice feature. And it allows me to kind of have a, a almost like a conversation with him, even when he's not in the same room as me. So that's one of the things that I'm using a lot at the moment. Don't know if that counts, but let, let's go with that. It does. I love it. I didn't know that was a feature, actually. That's good because it's it's all yeah, about discovery, good. music discovery. Um, Perfect. Love it. Cherie, thank you so much. Uh, your book, Demanding More, is available, I assume, from Amazon um, and other bookstores. It is. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and discover more about how to bring the important um, uh, factor of diversity in the workplace and other aspects of inclusivity uh, to their workplace, what uh, what yeah, ways so can they find you, you? If you go to shereeatchison.com, you'll find everything about me, probably more than you ever want to know. <laughs> and I'm also obviously on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And you're, um, I would love to hear from anybody too. Well, it's been great talking to you on the Iris Pod. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll speak again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Tom.